All right, I'm here again with um, Carrie McDonald. She's Senior Education Fellow at FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, um, and a very vocal, very outspoken advocate of homeschooling. She unschools her own kids and writes a lot about the issue. Um, recently, Carrie was in a debate with um, the Harvard professor, Elizabeth Bartolet, who famously came out with this uh I don't know if it's, she calls it a study, but it's a, a paper, I guess, um, in which she's very critical of homeschooling and calls for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Um, and I will post a link to that in the show notes. But um, Carrie, welcome to the show again. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Brittany. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, you you did this debate, which I watched and which I thought was very, I thought you did a great job of just really addressing all of her objections to homeschooling, just very point by point, very systematically. Um, and I have to say, I, I give her a lot of credit for coming on this debate because in my experience, um, people sort of in established academic positions and, and with big institutions um, tends to be very wary of debating libertarians, I would say, or, or debating people who um, who oppose their views. So I do give her a lot of credit for, for coming on and, and speaking with you. Um, but you wrote a piece afterwards, uh, you, the five things I learned debating the Harvard professor who called for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? What did, what did this experience um, teach you? Right. Well, thanks again. Um, it was a wonderful debate. I think you're absolutely right to say, you know, kudos to Elizabeth Barthollet for coming on. Also, I think it speaks highly of the Cato Institute and the reputation the Cato Institute has for bringing together um, people with different opinions to kind of share in a public civil forum. And so, you know, it was it ended up being a really good 90 minute debate. We had 5,000 people register for the webinar. Over 22,000 have watched on YouTube uh, just since last wow. Monday's debate. Wow. Um, and 1,000 questions submitted. So just huge uh, interest and viewership of, of this, again, 90-minute um, discussion that also included, I should say, Neil McCluskey, who's the director of the Center for Educational Freedom at Cato, as well as Milton Gaither, who's an education professor uh, and historian at Messiah College, who wrote the book uh, Homeschooling in American History, which is an excellent overview of the, the history of, of homeschooling. So yeah, after the debate, I felt like it was important to write a, an article for Fee.org that really gave a debrief of what yeah. uh, of what my um, reaction to it was. And so, yeah, include five things that I, that I found. And I think, you know, the first one is that there are people who believe that the state should be your co-parent. Um, this came out in Professor Bartholet's 80-page Arizona Law Review piece. Um, definitely, you know, her, um, her, you know, being favorable toward the state and toward government as, as being helpful and, um, and something that can be a real advocate for children and for individuals. Um, you know, her main, one of her main points in the Arizona Law Review piece is moving from um, our current interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, which focuses on negative rights or individuals being free from government intervention, to much more of a positive rights interpretation where the government 
grants rights, and takes a much more active role in individuals' lives, uh, including the lives of families and children. I mean, she talks a lot about what she calls our peer countries, um, in particular European countries that have more of this positive rights interpretation. She calls the U.S. Constitution outdated and inadequate, uh, and really does think that we should move toward um, uh, you know, much more active role of the state in people's lives. And, and, and that's where I, I talk about, you know, bringing up some of her quotes from the debate where she says things like, um, you know, there are some parents that can't be trusted to not abuse and neglect their children. And then goes on to say, that's why kids are going to be way better off if both parent and state are involved. She says that um, it's important to have the state have some say in protecting children and in trying to raise them. And that's a piece, you know, I mean, I would agree that, you know, the role of the state is to protect or secure individual rights. Uh, And you could argue that there's absolutely a role for the state in protecting individuals from harm, uh, in in particular children. Um, But this idea that we have, that the state has a role in raising children, I think is very problematic, um, particularly Mm -hmm. where we see, and I brought up so so often in the debate, that the government institution that's primarily focused on, quote unquote, raising children, which would be government schools, um, you know, is not doing well, both in um, its, its inability to protect children from abuse, either by government educators or peers, and doing a, a deficient job in helping um, secure academic um, advantages and outcomes. So, you know, what does that say for the track record of the state in terms of, quote unquote, raising our children? Right, uh, and right. I think because of that, it's important to, you know, again, have families have the presumption of knowing what's best for their kids. Right. And that was something that struck me in the debate. Um, maybe I missed it. So correct me if I, if I just missed this, but I didn't really hear her address that point. To, to me, it seemed like she just kept coming back to this belief that the state was this benevolent force and could, could act to both protect children and to, um, you know, help improve their education. But when you, I mean, you kind of brought out this hard hitting evidence that the state had failed miserably in both of those areas, I didn't really hear her address that, did she? Right. I mean, I think to be fair, um, the forum was such that, you know, there were four of us speaking. Um, it wasn't kind of your typical debate where you could challenge individual points. So right. I think part of it was just the forum itself. Um, you know, certain, you know, she could have certainly challenged me on some of my ideas and it just wasn't the type of space for that to happen, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, there, there is this real abysmal track record of government schools. And I think it's just that, you know, it goes back to kind of the larger worldview um, that, you know, I think she's expressing certainly in, in promoting positive rights and, and peer countries and how they've approached this is just that the state is benevolent and omniscient and can be, um, you know, used for good, even if it might fail that, you know, it's still um, something that we should have a lot of trust. In and you know libertarians um, might <laughs> challenge that and say you know you're you know individuals are flawed and and the government is made up of individuals and that's why we need to have 
uh, dispersed power and decentralized power, not putting power in the hands of the state, but really as much as possible, allowing for individual determination, uh, individual autonomy and self-determination. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems that homeschooling is sort of is one of the best examples of that, because as I think, as you pointed out, one of the reasons that a lot of parents choose to homeschool is precisely because their kids were being abused or bullied in a state school. I think that's right. I mean, a lot of parents use homeschooling as an exit ramp from an abusive school experience. So either uh, their children were victim of bullies, and there was some data that I shared in in the debate that said up to half of children in grades 4 to 12 are bullied at least once a month. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they could have been abused by government educators uh, and, in fact, cited the 2004 Department of Education study that found that one in 10 public school children would be sexually maltreated by a public school educator by the time they graduate high school. So incredible. these issues, right. And these issues, again, you know, it's, it's tragic that we have um, any kind of abuse or maltreatment of children. The reality is unfortunately that this occurs in all settings in public schools and private schools and in homes, but there is some evidence to suggest that homeschooling parents are actually less likely to abuse their children than um, children who are not homeschooled. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, that's my son. I actually need to. I need to pause for just a moment. Sure. sure. Sorry. Sorry about that. The perils of homeschooling. I just got interrupted by mine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So. So as yeah. As far as the, the abuse numbers, I mean. Um, yeah, that that to me, one out of ten is. I, I I would find it hard to believe that in the population generally, you know, that it's that high among you know within families. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, but yeah, that is that's pretty pretty shocking. It is, and and I think again, you know, speaks to a lot of times to your earlier point. Parents who are choosing homeschooling are doing so because they are even more focused on. Um, protecting their children from harm in removing them from an abusive school experience or, um, you know, shielding them from frequent bullying uh, and Mm -hmm. all that goes along with that. So, you know, we we absolutely want to be preserving that exit ramp for families. Yeah. Yeah. So what else did you learn um, from this this experience? Yeah. So um, the second one, the second piece that I put in my recent fee.org article, my reflection is random home visits will be a weapon of the state. So out of all of the recommendations in Professor Bartholet's Arizona Law Review piece calling for a presumptive ban on homeschooling, the recommendation that... um, created the most controversy and the most uproar among homeschoolers and libertarians uh, was this idea of home visits, random uh, regular home visits of homeschooling families with no evidence of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just so much wrong with that. You know, not only are we singling out a specific group of people for increased suspicion and surveillance, again, with no evidence of wrongdoing, um, but we're empowering the state to go into people's homes, and uh, and these would be people, you know, 
Professor Barthollet recommends people who are mandated reporters of child abuse, people who are look, trained to look for child abuse. So mm-hmm. that's kind of their lens. Um, yeah. And you're having them come in and interrogate your children and, and uh, you know, explore around your home. And that, that should just cause uh, all of us to be troubled by that. Um, yeah. I think all Americans should be really concerned about that. And in fact, I shared a quote in the debate and in the article that I can share again here, which was a Hispanic homeschooling mother in Connecticut who wrote to me uh, in response to Professor Barthollet's recommendations, saying that these home visits are particularly terrifying um, for her and are, uh, you know, very often could be used against particularly minorities um, in ways that are even more damaging than um, other members of the population. So she writes, to state that they want to have surveillance into our homes by having government officials visit and have parents show proof of their qualified experience to be a parent to their own child is yet another way for local and federal government to do what they have done to Native Americans, Blacks, the Japanese, Hispanics, etc. in the past. Her proposal would once again interfere and hinder a certain population from progressing forward. Such a powerful, powerful statement, um, again, about how these sort of well-intentioned government plans can backfire and in particular can be much more uh, damaging to uh, minority populations. And I think you were the one who's written about this because I know you've written about CPS being weaponized um, in the past. Right. And um, maybe it was you, maybe it was somebody else, but I have seen that CPS sort of going in um, as as this um, this this force, you know, presumptively to check and make sure children aren't being abused. But in mm. fact, it's really a very antagonistic force. And oftentimes, or sometimes I should say, um, children end up being removed from families. And that that does happen disproportionately to minority families. Was That's did right. you had you written about that or? Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, there's a lot a lot to talk about with CPS. I mean, one of the the points I made during the debate is we don't need to add a whole new level of government regulation onto homeschoolers singling out a particular population for increased regulation and oversight. Um, we already have child abuse laws in 50 states, and we already have a government agency, Child Protective Services, CPS, whose job it is to uh, investigate and prosecute or investigate and punish perpetrators of child abuse and neglect. So we simply need to have the existing government agency um, overhauled, reformed, and enabled to do its job. And I think what so often happens with CPS is they end up on lots of wild goose chases. Um, you know, there was a 2016 book, excuse me, there was a book recently written by Diane Redleaf, who's a longtime um, family attorney and activist for family rights who wrote the book, They Took the Kids Last Night. And she indicated that in 2016 alone, 7.4 million uh, calls came into CPS. 7.4 million children were uh, reported as being abused and neglected. Of that, 4.1 million were, you know, investigated, opened, you know, case files on these uh, children. And then out of that, about 676,000 um, had some kind of substantiated claim of abuse and neglect that had a wide range of severity from, you know, leaving a child unattended in the yard to, uh, you know, severe abuse and neglect. But 
that means that le- that fewer than 10% of the calls to CPS were actually substantiated in terms of mm-hmm. um, being defined as abusive, abuse and neglect on children, which means millions of families are being investigated, having right. uh, you know, officials come into their homes and, you know, potentially missing, obviously, you know, real serious cases of child abuse and neglect. And so, mm-hmm. um, so there's so much that we need to do in terms of thinking about reforming CPS. And then you're absolutely right. Another key problem with that, I mean, there's, there's so much we could talk about there, but another key problem with CPS is that uh, there was a 2018 investigative report by HuffPost and the Heckinger report that found that school districts frequently um, weaponized CPS against obstinate parents, parents who disagreed with the school district, disagreed with teachers or administrators' recommendations for their children's uh, learning or learning plans. So if a parent disagreed with a label that might be put on a child or a recommendation for medication or some other suggestion that school officials had for that child, if parents pushed back, they uh, the school district would frequently unleash CPS on these parents. And that's just terrifying mm-hmm. when you think about it. Um, and, and another as, reason to homeschool too. And as you mentioned, uh, a large percentage of these families are uh, poor, low-income families or minority families mm-hmm. who just don't have the resources to fight back. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really devastating. Yeah. And your point about homeschooling, I mean, this was another thing that came up in the debate and in the Arizona Law Review article um, where Professor Arthlett, you know, recommends that any family who wants to get permission under her regulatory regime of mm. homeschooling would have to have like a background check to make sure there's been no CPS reports. Well, again, <laughs> if we're looking at the ways in which CPS can be weaponized against right. obstinate parents... A key reason a parent might be pulling their kid out of school to homeschool is because they disagree adamantly with yep. the recommendations of that school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems intentionally or not, what she's really describing is implementing another layer of control. It's implementing another way to control families and control how your children are raised. Um quite apart from, you know, quality and protecting and all that. It's, it, to me, it just seems like it's all about control. I think that's right. I mean, that's, that is, you know, what this focus on um, positive rights or state power really is all about. You know, I mean, I think you and I care very deeply about children's rights. You know, if you think about, you know, what we would say in terms of making sure that children are, you know, are free from abuse and neglect, and have a lot of opportunities for individual autonomy. The trouble is, if you shift your legal framework uh, from the parents being the ones to be presumed to know what's best for their children, which is what we currently have in our neg- negative rights interpretation, to a positive rights interpretation, like some many of these European countries, you end up with the state um, representing the interests of the child. And of course, mm-hmm. the state's interest is to say, well, our government schools are superior, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. this, is the, this is the real challenge. Yeah, yeah, and and it seems that the all the evidence to the contrary doesn't doesn't seem to sway them. Um, okay, but but go on. You learned some other things too. Yeah. So the third one was that you know I think we should be concerned about private education more broadly. So homeschooling is just one form of private education. 
in the past, there have been efforts to try to um, abolish private education. That came to a peak in 1925 in the U.S. Supreme Court landmark decision, Pierce versus the Society of Sisters, that ruled it unconstitutional to ban private schools, saying that the child is not the mere creature of the state. But there remains lingering efforts to, uh, or support for and efforts to abolish private education. I think we should be concerned. And in the, toward the end of Professor Bartholet's Law Review article, she says, uh, she talks about private school reform, saying that private schools, um, many private schools have similar issues to what she sees with homeschooling, but that uh, private school reform is beyond the scope of her article, sort of leaving the door open that there could be some issues there. But one of the things that I found to be alarming was in the law review piece, she says, quote, to the degree public schools are seriously deficient, our society should work on improving them rather than simply allowing some parents to escape. <laughs> right. Uh, and that I word. thought just that, again, this, that, that we're allowing parents to escape. I find that to be chilling. Yes. Yes. Like the default is that they have us all in their grasp. And if we, you know, just the, the notion that we're, that we should we should be prevented from escaping like we're a bunch of prisoners or something right and very much aligned with this positive rights piece where the government yeah. allows to you to do certain things as yeah. opposed to yeah. the way we've currently focused in the constitution of we are free from government intervention yeah yeah um you also you talk about testing too yeah um so another piece of uh professor Bartlett's recommendation around um uh, a presumptive ban on homeschooling um, that actually others who may not go so far as to approve of a presumptive ban on homeschooling, um, but might want more regulation of homeschoolers or are sympathetic to is this idea of regular state standardized testing uh, of homeschoolers to make sure that they are uh, learning and progressing. And Professor Bartlett um, lays out what she would see as a, a preferred uh, standardized testing schedule, which would be at least annually to assess progress with tests selected and administered by public school authorities and your permission to continue homeschooling. Again, the government granting you permission only if you meet certain conditions um, would be based on your performance and low scores would trigger an order to enroll in school. Um, you know, there's so much to talk about in terms of standardized testing. The one thing I brought up on in Monday's debate was whose standard are we talking about mm -hmm. here? You know, is it is it the standard of the government schools where so many children are failing to meet those academic standards that the government has created? Is that the standard we're, we're operating off of here? And that then we have to send kids into those schools if their performance is somehow lagging in a homeschool. Um, but beyond that, Many parents, particularly families who have chosen to homeschool, say, in the last decade, uh, are choosing homeschooling because they are disillusioned by the increasing focus on standardized testing in schools. Mm -hmm. um, this was brought on by the advent of Common Core, many families saying this is 
you know, not the kind of learning environment that I want for my children. I don't want them subjected to uh, regular standardized testing. Um, you also see as part of that kind of rollout of Common Core, for example, literacy expectations being pushed down to lower and lower grades. So you yeah. have kindergartners now required to read. And if they're not <laughs> reading, they get a label right. uh, as reading deficient and then intervention and all these things that parents are saying, you know, maybe they're just not quite ready to read at age five. Maybe they're going to be seven or eight or more. Um, And so that's a problem. You also have many families choosing homeschooling because they have children with special needs whose needs are are not or would not be met well Mm -hmm. in a government school situation. Um, And, you know, I think just in, in general, just focused on making sure that we're not standardizing children, that we have, uh, that homeschooling allows for all of that individuality and customization of learning, that we're not replicating public school at home. Um, And if you're requiring homeschoolers to take state standardized testing every year, that's really going to limit, that's really going to limit a lot of that experimentation, originality, and creativity. Mm -hmm. And it seems like to me, the whole, the both the standardized testing and also the way she talks about um, you know, kind of wanting to, sh- I don't know if she used the word shape or mold, but to, to help educate our children, sort of the way she was talking about it, to me, it sounded very much like there is this one kind of outcome they want from educate from education, and that everyone should be put through this same funnel. And that's a fundamentally different view from not only from homeschooling, but I think from anyone who believes in a free society, it's not, you know, the way we see it, everyone doesn't go through the same funnel and come out with the same results. It's, it's, to me, it it sounds like there's just this lack of trust in a multifaceted society itself. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, certainly for those of us who are, you know, involved in homeschooling or appreciate alternative models of education and particularly alternatives to school, um, you know, sometimes it is interesting to meet those who, you know, can't even imagine that kind of educational paradigm, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that, well, you know, it's fine to have some um, variation or, you know, some creativity as long as you're still working within this schooled framework. Um, And, you know, I think that's, that's really something we need to challenge. And in the debate, I talked about, you know, how uh, homeschoolers have long challenged this idea of schooling as the only way to be educated and that many homeschoolers really uh, try to separate, to disentangle education from schooling. Yeah. Yeah. So you wrap up this article by saying homeschoolers will win. <laughs> um, why are you so optimistic? You know, I think there's there are very few movements today that bring together such a diverse group of people as homeschooling does. Um, you know, homeschoolers don't agree on a lot, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, yeah. it's such a heterogeneous group representing um, all layers of the political spectrum, uh, yeah. different ideologies, geographies, demographics. And yet come together um, to, with this kind of common belief that parents should have the right to raise and educate their children as they choose. And, and I think what I kind of end the article with is saying that in times of division, uh, homeschoolers really offer hope and optimism that liberty will prevail.
I mean, that's kind of how I see it. I feel like it's, it really gets to the core of a free society. You know, so much of the support, the support for um, a powerful state for authoritarianism. I, when I look around me, I see that support coming directly from public education. I, myself, I did, I did both. I was in Montessori and then, um, uh, weird alternative Catholic school and then public school and just the, the contrast in sort of the, the paradigm that you're being given, um, is again, this is just my experience, but I really do feel that people going through the public schools are really learning an authoritarian paradigm. They're learning Mm. this, um, to be a part of a top-down, one-size-fits-all, do-as-you're-told, trust authority, all these values. And my, why, the reason I'm so optimistic about, about homeschooling or about people sort of abandoning that system is that it's really, it's not just abandoning a method of teaching, it's abandoning a whole paradigm. Um, do you see it all that way or is that yeah. just me? Yeah, no, and I completely agree with you. I, I, in fact, in my prepared remarks on at the debate, I talk about the history of compulsory schooling back in the mm-hmm. mid-19th century, and it was very much designed to do exactly as you say. It was designed mm-hmm. to instill this kind of order, compliance, and obedience to authority, and in particular, to assimilate, kind of forced assimilation of, at the time, Irish Catholic immigrants um, Mm -hmm. and other immigrant groups that really challenged the dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture of the time. Mm -hmm. And so you have this common school movement that really takes hold initially in Massachusetts, passing the first compulsory schooling statute in 1852, um, quickly followed by other states. But at that time, Um, For the first time, really, parents were required to send their children to a common school under a legal threat of force. Uh, Of course, some of the architects of that common school movement, most notably Horace Mann, who was the secretary Mm -hmm. of the Board of Education in Massachusetts, homeschooled his three children with no intention of sending them Mm -hmm. to the common schools that he mandated for others. But it was this idea that, oh, you know, the common schools will bring together everybody um, and, and we will have this kind of uniform society. And what we forget again is that this was really forced assimilation of particularly immigrant groups. So these mm-hmm. schools were purportedly secular and yet they had the King James version of the Bible, the Protestant Bible. They had Protestant teachers, um, you know, everything about the classroom was focused around Protestant values. So it was this idea that we were going to, mm-hmm. we're going to assimilate children into the common values of the right. time. And of course, um, to your point around challenging that many Catholics, um, rebelled and created their own parallel system of parochial schools saying yeah. that we're not going to put up with this. And that's ultimately what led to, um, you know, 75 years later, really the, uh, the Supreme court decision that, ruled it unconstitutional to ban uh, private education. It was very much an attack again on, on uh, at the time, Catholic parochial schools. Do you feel like um, Professor Bartholet's paper was a reaction to what was, was sort of written out of fear that there is a big backlash against um, 
against public schools um, or that there's that there's sort of a growing because I feel like even before COVID-19, there was this growing momentum and now it's just, you know, been given a big boost. Do you think that's where her paper came from? Well, I think it's fair to say that her paper was, uh, I'm sure, well in the works um, at the Arizona, well, for, for sure, the Arizona Law Review piece and the Harvard Magazine piece that followed it that ultimately, I think, led to um, a lot of notoriety around this piece. This was all in the pipeline well before COVID-19 hit. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just coincidental, really, that that this all happened at a time when um 55 million U.S. children are out of school due to the pandemic. Um, But, you know, I I, I could only speculate, but I would say, you know, I I don't know that this was particularly an attack um, on, you know, trying to get fewer people to homeschool. Perhaps it was. But my sense is, you know, Professor Bartlett has had a long and, um, you know, illustrious career really being a child rights advocate and just particular Mm -hmm much of her work, most of her work uh, has been focused around adoption rights and expanding. Mm. Adoption rights has done some really incredibly positive work in that area, in particular international adoption. Um, And so I think she probably looks at this from just, we have to protect all children. Uh, Let's look at homeschoolers as something that's unregulated or largely unregulated and and let's um, take a closer look there. So Mm -hmm. my sense is that, uh, that, you know, I'm speculating, but of course my sense is that she's coming at this with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, as we see, you know, often government well-meaning intentions have really dire consequences. Right. Right. Do you worry, we talked a little bit about this the last time, um, but with this new, you know, huge numbers of people getting introduced to homeschooling and a lot of them saying, you know, there's no way I'm going to send my kid back to this new normal that the CDC is is telling us we all have to have. Um, do you, do you, do you worry that there is going to be a big bash, backlash against homeschooling for that reason, I mean, a lot of schools are going to be seeing their their numbers drop. Um, by all indications, it seems like a lot of schools are going to see um, drops in enrollment um, in the coming year. Are you worried that that will sort of spark more of a of a I don't know an attempt to crack down on homeschoolers or um, problems for us going forward? Yeah, I mean, you're already seeing anecdotal evidence of that, um, just individual stories of uh, families who have notified their school district or state or whoever in their state they have to contact to um, indicate that they're homeschooling, um, then getting some pushback or, Mm -hmm. you know, having some denial of their right to homeschool, those kinds of battles. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll likely see some of that. I'm not sure on what scale. But as I think I mentioned in our last discussion, I think it will be uh, within the school district's best interest to try to keep these families from um, jumping ship for homeschooling. So I think that they'll probably try to bend over backwards as much as possible to just say, well, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to homeschool. We'll just create this flexible option for you Mm -hmm. or, 
you know, you can kind of customize your own week and maybe do some online stuff and come to school if you want. My sense is that they would want to be ultra flexible with families because they don't want to lose that kind of per pupil expenditure um, and lose that population of students that they might then not get back. Right. uh, Right. When things return to normal. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's in a way the, um, the whole COVID-19 response might actually be making public schools a little bit more accountable to families in that, you know, families who didn't really see that they had an alternative before now see that they have one and I don't know, might, might demand more. I think that's absolutely true. I think we will not only in the long term definitely see an uptick in the number of homeschooling families. Um, I think we will also see an uptick in the number of families choosing virtual schooling because for some Mm -hmm. kids, this has, this has been better for them. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, I think it was the New York Times that had an article about uh, written by a student who said, I'm, I'm really enjoying remote learning, don't want to go back to mm-hmm. uh, brick and mortar. So I think we'll see much more wider acceptance of virtual learning options. Um, and then just lar- more, lar- more you know, kind of a more global level, I think we'll see a lot of families embrace education choice now that they have a taste Mm -hmm. of what it is to really be put back in charge of their child's education, even though to a large degree, they've still been kind of at arm's length with the local school district. They are still seeing much more of their children, much more involved in their child's life than they have been previously. And I think once parents are re-empowered to be overseeing their child's development and education, they're not going to so easily want to give that up when this ends. And so I think we will absolutely see more demand for education choice, more education options for families. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We need to wrap up, but do you have any parting words for families who may be new to homeschooling and are just looking for resources, looking for, um, you know, how to make that decision? Any, any parting words for new homeschooling families? Well, I think now is a great time to be experimenting with homeschooling. Realize that, you know, this doesn't have to be a long-term commitment. This could be something that families decide just to try out for the fall, um, particularly as we talked last time about these extreme social distance mechanisms and measures that are being implemented in school districts around the country um, that are really turning a lot of parents off from uh, having their kid return to school, even if they open in the fall. I think this is a great time for parents to give homeschooling a try. And hopefully, as things around the country do seem to open up a little bit more, um, parents may start to see a more realistic glimpse of what homeschooling is, that it's Mm -hmm. not what we've experienced this spring when we were all isolated from our communities and unable to connect uh, with the people, places, and things around us. Um, Hopefully, families will start to be able to do that to a greater degree um, in the coming months, and then they might see that homeschooling is even better than they thought it was. Um, Mm -hmm. But now's a great time for giving it a try, and um, particularly letting your child's interests really drive a lot of their learning. Um, You know, I think a lot of families have seen over the last few months their child's curiosity and drive for learning um, be rekindled. Maybe their kids like reading books again, or 
uh, are really interested in a specific subject that they might not have been able to delve into when so much of their time was focused on um, the school day. So uh, really allowing for that freedom and flexibility uh, in, in learning that homeschooling, of course, is so um, well positioned to allow for. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Um, yeah. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Brittany. It's great.